At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Danny Christensen goes by the Instagram handle The Urban Huntsman. He's originally from Denmark, lives in Italy, is a fashion photographer by training, and has decided to take on this vision of communicating, increasing the vocabulary of hunters through what he does in The Urban Huntsman. Danny is currently producing a show that is taking urban huntsmen and showing how they engage with food. And it is a perfect segue to show how your neighbor down the street in an urban environment that is a hunter can talk and communicate and provide vocabulary to anyone in the space to talk to their non-hunting brethren. This is a phenomenal conversation and I can't wait for you to hear it. <laughs> okay, here's the difference, right? This is what happens. Is that typically I have a little bit of brown liquid in my hand. Um, but today, the brown liquid is very different. It's dark and almost black looking because I'm drinking coffee and it is way early in the morning for me. And you are drinking a beautiful white wine? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, a beautiful white wine. I live in Italy, Ravi, so um, it's kind of, it's a, there's no choice. You just basically drink wine uh, uh, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So you can get used to it. It's not that bad. So Italy is home? Italy is home now, yeah. I moved here three years ago. Okay, where was home before that? Was it like Romania? Did I get it right? <laughs> Bulgaria? No, no, you're actually pretty far off. Damn. Before, yeah, damn. Home before that was uh, was New York City, baby, for 20 years. You don't sound like a New York City person. Come on now. So no, Where's the accent originally from? The accent uh, is Danish. I'm from Denmark okay. originally, but um, I spent the last 20 years in, in New York. Um, I was about to say New York City, but it's not entirely true because 
I uh, I did relocate uh, to upstate New York, up in the Catskills, and and spent some of the time out there. But uh, I guess that was a couple of years, all in all, together. But I split my time between New York City and then then upstate New York in the in the wilderness of the the Catskills uh, State Park. Now, when you were in New York, you were a fashion photographer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. This I, is I'm, I'm now in the in the hills of of Italy of uh, a valley called Valtrebia, and I'm uh, officially still a fashion photographer. So, yeah. So no, I'll I say you are our through. first fashion photographer on the Blood Origins podcast. Am I really? Uh, of course, like really? You, you, you would think I would have multiple conversations with fashion photographers every single day, right? Yeah, Danny? of course, of course. <laughs> so, Danny, introduce yourself, please, to our Blood Origins audience. Okay. Um, yeah, I mentioned it before. I'm originally from Denmark. Um, I'm a communications professional i guess you can call me i um i'm a fashion photographer photographer in general director uh for commercials and and uh, um yeah the likes uh fashion photography primarily um been shifting over to to more storytelling based and and doing more of a, a little more commercial work in the in the recent years um i think the the fashion industry kind of had enough of me. I had enough of them, but um, which is not entirely true. I, I just simply shifted over into only only shooting shooting the things that I that I like to shoot, and, and that primarily means that I go on locations now. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to incorporate um, nature into my work mm-hmm. uh, every single time I go out and, and do a job and. And uh, I took a, a good seventy five percent of my portfolio and, and threw it away, and then left the last twenty five percent in there that had to had to do with locations and nature. And I think uh, it's just uh, reaching that time where you're where you have right. to start to evaluate how you use your time. And and I like the storytelling, and I, it's not necessarily that important for me who the the client is or who the brand is. Of course, they would like it to be something to. That betters the world. I would like it to be something that's got right. to do with the outdoors, or um, but um, the the reality of that is is a that's a very limited uh, mm-hmm. client pool. So my plan was to to figure out a way to actually incorporate nature into my work, and that being the fashion work also. So go to great locations that can inspire me in that way, and and um, I think my work has improved tremendously over the last like three years when I started doing this shift, and uh, and now I'm happy every single job I, I do. It's it's out in nature, um, going to different places, and I do less job than I did before, which is kind of a good thing and by design. Sure. Uh, and, and but isn't that we, part of the maturation process, right? The maturation process of in the beginning and just like I'm going to take every single job I can get. Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to do the work, and now it's almost like, man, I just need to slow down and I need to yeah, pick exactly. the things that I like to do. And I'm not going to make as much money, or maybe opposite, you actually make more money yeah. because yep. you're being selective and you can charge more. Exactly. You know, another thing that's a, I think if you're uh, if you're an advertising professional, you you do communication for visual communication for a living, um, differentiation and, and specializing and really finding something that's your own. It's always something that's been a bit of a challenge for me because I'm inspired by a lot of different things and a lot of different uh, styles are intriguing and inspiring for me. So uh, it's been a it's been a process just to simply narrowing down what I want to spend my time like on and, and where. Um, and I think that the project of the Urban Huntsman that we're probably going to talk a little bit about is uh, is something that, that pushed me in, in that direction. Um, that helped me define, define what, what was important and what wasn't. Sure, sure. Well, firstly, I, I freaking love Denmark. I was only, I was lucky enough to go there for five days, two or three years ago. And was probably one of the best times, best five days of my life. Like the you know Copenhagen, going out into the country, um, the tradition, the driven hunt, the food, the the snow, the old buildings, everything. Like you talk from a visual communication perspective, it was just mm, 
mm-hmm. you know, it was it was bright, it was sort of mind seeding visuals that yeah. I absolutely loved. Is that where? So, growing up in Denmark, you grew up as a hunter. I did. I I kind of did. Um, we lived in in a, a town, a, a larger town, um, until I was five, and then. Uh, when I was five, my parents decided to to kind of shift uh, the lifestyle over, and they wanted to give uh, my sister and I a different way of of growing up, and they wanted us to have nature around us. We did have nature; we were on the outskirts of this town, and it was not like a metropolis city. Um, but they wanted us to be on a farm. They wanted mm-hmm. us to be able to have uh, some chickens and and uh, geese and and some cattle, a few heads of yeah, cattle. Yeah, yeah. And pigs and things like that, and in a big garden that we could actually go in and you know plant and harvest our own food from. So um, looking back, uh, my kind of interest in the in that direction started when we moved to the farm. And uh, none of my parents are hunters, nor nor was my my grandparents. Um, but we had a close family friend that um, that was a big fisherman and a big hunter and. Uh, and uh, he kind of took me under his his wing, and then I started getting getting interested in it when uh, yeah, since I was like five years old, and mm-hmm. uh, I had an uncle that also hunted specifically hunted uh, ducks out on the on the fjords of of Denmark. Um, mm-hmm. So they kind of became my my inspiration source and my introduction into hunting. But it all goes back to to. The way that I was brought up and the way that I was um, exposed to food sources, um, really making a, a, a conscious uh, connection between what we were eating. I mean, we would have we would have a couple of pigs that was our pets, um, you know, sister, strong. and and you come out there, and the pig comes running and teaches it to sit, and and uh, the next the next day the the cutlets are on the the plates, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Said, you know, it's kind of a, a brutal, kind of a raw awakening, but uh, mm-hmm. absolutely also, also one that I greatly appreciate now. And I think that's yeah. one of the biggest challenges we have in the world today is that disconnect, uh, that mental disconnect. Uh, we we outsourced all the killing to the machines and the, and the industrial exactly. uh, in the industrial productions, and, and we are mentally disconnected from it, and therefore we don't take any ownership of it. We don't take. We're not advocates for animal welfare. We're not advocates for uh, conservation. We're not advocates for for uh, for protecting the environment, etc. It means less and less to the younger generations uh, that are disconnected. But the yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Organization gravitating towards the cities. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest thing that you know we've been seeing, and and obviously it's one of the probably one of the elements of why Urban Huntsman uh, sort of was was born is that this idea that I think hunting and its perceptions all stem from the fact that there is a disconnected uh, society away from where food comes from. Number one, so if you want to go to the sort of foundational core issue is that you eat meat and you have an issue with hunting, but Mm -hmm. you don't know actually where your meat comes from. Yeah. I, th- I mean, obviously, you and I are kindred spirits, and and we can talk about this and agree on a lot of these things. What I'm trying to do now with the Urban Huntsman Project um, is to find a way to communicate to the general public. Uh, since I started the project, I didn't, I didn't um, push the content through your conventional hunting channels. I went and right. and teamed up with a food magazine with Copenhagen mm-hmm. Food Magazine because I wanted mm-hmm. to get out and actually talk to the general public. And I think we're lucky in, in Denmark that um, that we have a, a, a general broad understanding of life. Well, it's one of the most progressive societies with yeah. regards to hunting in the world. Yeah, regards to hunting and a lot of other things. And that there's not – generally, we don't have a history of, um, of, of um, rejecting any kind of – conversation so per per definition we can talk about anything and we talk about everything with respect and Mm -hmm. and an ear and and an open mind walking into that conversation with um with the prospect of of having an 
open dialogue where we are listening to the to the others and we are open for uh, interpretation and, and changing our minds if if there's something that makes sense to us. So um, we were just we were talking about spending time in Denmark. Um, I don't remember if I mentioned it to you at the beginning here, but we. Uh, uh, at the beginning of this year, a TV channel reached out to me and they asked me if I would be interested in taking the the Urban Huntsman concept to TV and then produce a 13 episode series. So we are if you if you're looking, if you're noticing the bag underneath my eyes, that's because of this. Oh, that's guy. why you're drinking oh, wine in the middle of the day. I drink right? wine to fucking balance out everything a little bit. <laughs> Say somewhat. Same so what's that 13 episodes going to be about? Is it is it all tied to food or are you talking about different elements? Or No, we're talking about different elements. Um, what I wanted to do with the show, which is called The Urban Huntsman, The Hunt for Silence and a Good Meal. Uh, it will air globally. I like that. Um, thank you. Thank you. It will air globally uh, via app and via subscription also through uh, Wild TV. Um, it will also, of course, be going directly on Wild TV's um, uh, TV yep, network yep. channel. Um, the is, show, that a, is that a Danish TV network, Wild TV? Uh, Wild TV is Canadian. Okay, okay. It's Canadian, so it's uh, the equivalent to the, you know. And it'll be released live in Denmark on the on the TV network in Denmark? No, it won't. It will be uh, the subscription models uh, where you can subscribe through app and okay. you can I've um, we had a browser and like like my outdoor TV has the same kind of uh, yeah format. yeah so a paywall kind of scenario yeah, yeah. exactly exactly um, what I wanted to do with the series was to take the concept of the urban huntsman and kind of uh, maybe maybe make it a little more urban make it um, looking forward rather than leaning too much on the traditions and the past and 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 uh, ways of the past. Although I greatly respect them and appreciate them and their, their foundation, I mean, for me, the more rustic and the more simple things become, the more pure it is and the, the, the greater the experience. Um, but what I wanted to do was to kind of, in, in many of the episodes, take, um, take the microphone, take the editorial microphone that I've had now for, for about seven years with the Urban Huntsman Project and hand it over to other hunters for them to tell their story. I wanted to give them a platform. I wanted to, a more urban focused uh, group mm-hmm. to come in and say, what What does it mean? Who is the, this urban huntsman or huntress? And why Why are they actually hunting? They have all the convenience in the world in these metropolis city from, you know, yep, where yep. We, focused. we focused on Europe on season one because uh, it was kind of like Perfect. A, we had a late late start in the production, so from from practical reasons, uh, we started here, and we traveled around to different areas, and we we had a couple of ones, uh, specifically one where we are uh, where we are over in Romania, as you mentioned before, where we are kind of looking back and and trying to figure out how we could be how we can uh, find some solutions for the future by looking back mm-hmm. and. Uh, Romania is one of the the places in in Europe where uh, there's it's such a beautiful, great, enormous country where very sure. isolated groups of people are living like they did essentially uh, fifty yeah, hundred years ago. Yeah, fifty hundred yeah. years ago. Yeah. So I wanted that as a kind of a contrast. I wanted to dive in and see what that meant. You know, what did that mean for the way that they lived? What did that mean for their mental health? What did that mean for their priorities? Um, how did they spend the little money that they had? What What is important to them? Um, how much time do they have on their hands? I mean, that's a great asset that we mm-hmm. have time. And I think that's a, in the recent years is something that we can all kind of relate to with mm-hmm. what's been going on in the world. All of a sudden, well, you know, tomorrow is not really secure anymore. So how do, how the hell do we spend that time and one of the ways of, of getting more time is to, is to simplify. So we went there and we actually saw um, we saw how people lived uh, 50 years ago in the in the western part of the world. In in well, Italy has some rural areas too, but that's it's very similar. Sure. But um, you know, the majority of the rest of the European countries in North America for sure is uh, you know it's a it's a, a very different lifestyle. And we 
uh, we aspire to the wrong things, I think. Uh, so I wanted to see how these urbanites are actually doing that. What does it mean for them? And I wanted to build up a vocabulary for hunters that are watching the show for them to take a conversation with your, with their neighbor, with the person that yeah, they meet yeah. in the supermarket. I think we have... Um, Isn't that the most important conversation to have? No, I think... It, into, the, into the echo chamber that we've created? Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. But also, I'm very aware that there's a big group of hunters that we cannot reach. And they are just going to continue to shoot holes in the boat that we all sitting in until they, yeah. until they drop and die or until they get so old they can't hunt anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, most of them are pretty uh, uh, social media illiterate, so they cannot figure out who to, to post on Instagram. And that's a, Some of them are uh, very social media literate, unfortunately. Yeah, so, some of them are, and, and that's a younger generation of hunters and that. That was why I want to come in and give kind of give the microphone to these other people that are um, a creative director in an ad ad agency, a personal female personal trainer that lives in the center of Copenhagen that focuses a lot on both the mental and the physical aspects of hunting and also the wild game meat. How that? I actually wonder who is. that was. Yeah, I don't know. You're gonna have to watch the show. <laughs> it's it's. Uh... Did her, is her first name Meta? Possibly. <laughs> Whatever you know, every every other every other girl in Denmark is named Meta. So I think they got away with the Denmark thing, I guess. <laughs> so that's cool. I love the idea that um, uh, you know what I love the most about it is the relatability of the individual that you've you've positioned with the microphone. Right? It's no point going and getting a rural country person. Um, that urban person can be relatable to the guy down the street, right? Yeah. I, I think that the biggest divide right now is the urban population that has lost contact with uh, the rural population, with nature, with uh, the way that things are produced. And we don't, I say we, um, the majority of people don't want to make the mental connection. It's a hell of a lot easier not um, right. putting that responsibility on your shoulders and just continue to go into a restaurant and eat whatever you want to eat or order your uh, order your Chinese food from around the corner and happily eat the, the chicken that's in there that's uh, that was factory farmed, never saw the day of life pumped up with steroids and hormones and had a broken leg because they grew too fast and the bones couldn't hold their weight and and mm-hmm. never had a breath of fresh air and then was slaughtered before right around eight weeks of age. You know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, it's a hell of a lot easier not to think about that animal actually had a heartbeat before and, and whether I'm the one who killed it with a uh, going out and, and choosing to shoot a pheasant instead and put that on my table or you killed it with your fork and knife or with your phone when you picked up the phone and placed the... Uh, uh, place order. your delivery order, you know. So yep. it's important for me that we try to figure out how we can have that conversation in the public space and then what vocabulary we can use. How can we dress up hunters? How can we make them comfortable with having this conversation? How can we give them some some words and some sentences that they can uh, that can inspire them to take that conversation without them feeling being uh, that they're being pushed into a corner and it's a fight or flight uh, reaction that uh, that comes out as a result of it that then by the majority of times will end up damaging us rather than actually mm-hmm. benefiting mm-hmm. us. Do you think food is that is that that it's the language? It's the it's the it's the sort of initiation point. Yeah. You say you're okay. giving them you're giving them information. You're giving them seeds that they can engage people. Is yeah. food that just like everyone gets it? I think it is. I mean, you put, you touched on it yourself. If you go in, ninety-five percent of the world's population are carnivores. So, one of the reasons there was two main reasons why I started the Urban Huntsman Project. One was an excuse for myself to actually get out of New York City and go find these adventures that waited at the end of the E train. Literally, mm-hmm. you, you take your bow in the E train and you get off the last stop. And then you walk mm. for 20 minutes and you're in a state park and you can bow hunt. 
and you mm -hmm. can essentially take that deer with you in the subway all the way back again. You know, it's mm -hmm. not that far away. Any of these urban areas that you live in, it's still within reach, but we need to seek it out and we need to find it. And there needs to be, I think there needs to be avenues for us to, some communication channels that can guide us and can show us how that, that's done, essentially. Um, I got deviated from your question. What was it? No, no, you're right. I was talking about how, you know, I think in, in speaking to the non-hunting audience, you know, there's certain things that are just easy entry ways into those conversations. And and food is absolutely one of them, right? Food, yeah. that, that idea that someone goes, oh, I hate hunting. Mm -hmm. The easiest entry point to anyone listening in that conversation is, well, okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. I understand why you hate hunting. We have a bad perception around us. There's a PR problem associated with hunting. but do you eat meat? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is yes, then they just open the door to say, well, why is that any different between you eating meat and mm -hmm. me eating the meat that I, I choose to hunt? Mm -hmm. You know, I know where it lived. I know how it lived and was very selective in its take. I know how it died. I know everything about that. And, and some, and probably to the nth degree, I was the only person who touched that meat. No. Can yeah. you answer those same questions about the ribeye that you ate last night? Yeah. And I think that's a, going back to a, um, where I got lost before was um, a kind of the, the follow-up to that. When, when I lived in New York City and I was in this um, in, in the fashion industry, uh, in the advertising industry, um, some of these people are probably the ones that are the furthest away from their food sources or net, and it's for well, they're the, they're the biggest, yeah. let's be honest, the people in, not you as the fashion photographer, but the fashionistas are the people that are the biggest microphones, loudspeakers, bullhorns for the people that hate hunting. Yeah. 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 No, that's a bit, that's a big crew. Listen, I'm, I'm all for more conscious consumption of meat and eating less meat. I actually, I quite often say, I think uh, if I didn't hunt myself, I would be a vegetarian because I care deeply about animal welfare. I care deeply about the environment. I actually put my money where my mouth is and invest both my time and monetary value into preserving and securing both of those. And mm -hmm. one of the ways that I do it is that I, if I eat or if I buy commercially, um, commercially farmed meat, uh, I buy the organic version that gives me a, a sense of security that the animal had a better life than any of the other options except for wild game. Mm -hmm. So when I was having these conversations with people, you know, the first thing in, in the United States is I have I'm sure that you uh, already experienced the first question is, uh, what do you do? It's not who are you or where you're from or anything. It's like what you do. And I started deviating from answering that question uh, straightforward. And I, I, you know, within uh, the same sentence of who I am and where I'm from, I was, I was typically telling them what I spent my time on and what I valued. Mm -hmm. uh, and hunting and, and harvesting my own meat and food always came up. And mm -hmm. um, I found that within a five-minute conversation, I have not had one person that did not gain a level of respect and understanding for my choices. And that kind of sparked a thought that kept on growing and growing and saying, okay, um, English is not your first language. Uh, despite that, without using your other most valuable tool, uh, a, a camera, then I'm still able in a loud uh, restaurant or lounge to convince these people or, or uh, turn their point of view upside down on hunting within right. less than five minutes. And then I was thinking, you know what, maybe... Maybe actually I do have a way of, of doing that on a larger scale, and maybe I do have a responsibility to do it. Mm -hmm. And I felt that responsibility, and that kind of became my, my calling and said, listen, I got I to gotta figure out a way that I can continue to inspire both hunters and non-hunters to talk about this and, mm -hmm. and 
it, it went always went back to the food because mm-hmm. that's the one you you disarm the 95 percent instantly if you just hold the two up against each other and i think that's one of the biggest challenges that we have in our hunting community is that we are afraid of having that conversation because we that's are so true. closely tied to the farmers and many hunters are farmers but we have to say what is the alternative if we don't do that how, how do you present something how do you actually hold the two up against each other? Why do you think hunters are afraid to speak about it? Uh, I think there's two main reasons. The the hunting is closely tied to um, to estates. In Europe, for example, here in Italy is different. Uh, North America is a different model, but the, the rest of Europe. Let's take oh, there's that a one. class issue is what you're saying, like hunting is tied no. to class. No, no, no. There's not a class issue, but the hunting is not free. Oh, well, right, right, right. Okay, okay. The hunting, but right. isn't that tied to class? Private, private versus public? No, I don't. Mm, I don't. I don't think it is because it's still available. It is a bigger, bigger challenge in these countries because okay. it's getting more and more expensive because corporations are actually being allowed to come in and take uh, or lease the rights on a larger estate, for example, or they do it on the smaller estates and then combine them together. And then they use that as a sort of a, a corporate outing or inviting uh, clients okay. in, etc. Instead of going out and playing golf, now they're hunting. And that is obviously a, a challenge. Um, but the general public is still uh, able to go out and find a small piece of, of land and lease that for, for very little. Or they go together like three, four, five hunters okay. and it's, I don't think it's an access problem. Okay, I okay. don't think so. But the problem is, uh, who do you lease from? You lease from the farmers. So how are you going to have that conversation? How are you going to point the finger back at the farmers and say, these pigs that stand in here that that, that cannot move, that cannot lay down, uh, that lives a, a terrible, stressful life uh, from the day that they're born to the day that they die, uh, maybe you should do a better job. Who do you think is going to speak up and then... Mm-hmm. Uh, risk the repercussions of these farmers saying Mm -hmm. fuck you guys you're not going to be able to rent my land anymore and that is the one thing the other thing is of course that the farming organizations are extremely powerful i mean in denmark the largest export farming export is is pork meat and and try to go in and, and ask questions or raise questions about their farming methods or the way that they treat the animals palma i live close to palma Prosciutto di Parma. Here, I mean, there's been there's been very brave journalists that have walked into some of these production halls of of, of uh, commercial factory farm pork that is being sold as prosciutto di Parma, and with a little uh, you know a little spy camera filmed these conditions, and it, it's appalling. I mean, it makes your stomach turn when you actually see some of these conditions. It's not mm-hmm. everybody, but the, the mm-hmm. vast majority, if you hold that up against a wild living animal that's harvests, harvested mm-hmm. um, in a in a ethical matter, uh, quick and, and fast and won't feel any pain, I mean, then you can convert souls. Then you can come out and say, well, hunting is the better alternative. Right. But we, right. we can't talk about that. So that's I think that's a big problem is that we are closely tied to the farmers. Um, our hunting rights is closely tied to the farmers. And if you take to the United States, you can go in and they can post it on, they can post uh, private land if they don't want uh, hunters there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there is a resurgence? Like, I know, I think I see it in America that there is this change, shift, the idea of locavore movement, the idea of knowing yeah. where your food's coming from. So the sort of regenerative agriculture sector is growing and building uh, sort of the small farm, niche farm that used to be sort of dying is now resurging. You mm. seeing that as well across the board? Yeah, we've seen, it. we've seen that for sure. The problem is in the United States that accounts for less than 5% of the production. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, when are we going to get there? I don't think we're going to get there before before it's too late for hunting. Um, I, so I want to kind of raise a bit of a couple of questions and maybe kick it over to you because maybe you have some insights that I don't know about. But um, in Europe, in Europe, we are part of the European Union. 
when a uh, decision is made in Brussels, it affects every single one of the countries. Okay. In Denmark, for example, we are very progressive. What we're doing is uh, very good. We're having some really nice, beautiful, cumbersome 360 conversations about hunting, about animal welfare, about conservation uh, in the public space, uh, in on the national TV channels, etc. But we can think that we're doing great in Denmark. But when the public opinion is uh, is sharply against the approval rate of hunting, uh, is of maybe a twenty percent or maybe fifteen percent in the majority of the rest of the EU countries, that means that at some point within long, that is going to affect what we do in Denmark, and that means mm-hmm. we can be just as good in Denmark as we want to be. But that's not, in the end, it's not really going to matter because it's going to be a, a centralized decision that's going to be made in Brussels, the, where the EU is controlled from, and then mm-hmm. hunting is going to be forbidden. Sure. I, sure. My, my, my projection is that within 10 years, if nothing dramatically changes, if industry do not back up hunting, if they don't start putting their euros or their dollars towards supporting hunting and, and and advancing our PR challenge, then right. I think within 10 years, the majority of hunting is going to be forbidden in, in many European countries, in, including Germany, Holland, France, right. Italy, Spain. And then I think it's, it's unfortunately going to be a ripple effect that's going to spread. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the, the PR issue is the key, right? And there's a reason why you're doing what you're doing, and it's a reason why Blood Origins is doing what it's doing. And it didn't it didn't result from an, an overnight change in perceptions around hunting. It no. resulted from twenty to thirty years of nobody thinking about, oh shit, we have a bad PR problem tied to hunting. Yeah. yeah. That's where we are today. And it's a little unrealistic that it's going to change tomorrow based on what you're doing and based on what we're doing. It's very unrealistic. But at the same time, if you work in communication like I've done now for 25 years, you also know the power of the message and you know the power of social media. The challenge is that we don't have the funds. There's no centralized units that are going to distribute the funds or collect the funds from hunters. What do you pay on your on your license in the states? Is there five dollar uh, fee, a PR fee, or one dollar PR fee? It'd be great, eh? It'd be great to have something like that. Yeah, have to. And for me, it's the only way it's going to work. It's the only way it's going to work is if uh, some of these centralized uh, organizations will come in. Like here in Europe, we have Face that's uh, that yep. is. Uh, a, a group that uh, covers all the different national hunting organizations, kind of a hunting organization for hunting organizations in the different countries. And yeah. they are one of ones that could be able to go in and, and push this through. Uh, but we need industry and then we need a centralized uh, funding system. And it's just, think about what one euro or one dollar could do on each one of the hunting licenses. Oh, unbelievable. We, we are looking at right now, statistically for 2021 in Europe, we're looking at a budget, a, a pro-hunting PR budget around 1.2 million between all the organizations in the entire Europe. Anti-organizations, what we are considering anti-hunting organizations have roughly around 27 million euros. Mm. But we are outgunned and we are outsmarted by a, a group of activists that are much younger, much more media savvy. And us, uh, the majority of the group of hunters are baby boomers. And the baby boomers are uh, either they don't care because their sons and daughters and their grandchildren are no longer going to be, uh, they're not going to be hunters. So they don't really have any value. They don't have a stake in it anymore. They know yep. that they're going to be able to go to hunt until they can't anymore. And then that's it for them. Um, mm-hmm. But they don't, they don't care, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that's a big, big, big challenge with industry not backing us up. Because we are a lot of people. There's you, there's me, there's a whole bunch of other uh, people associated with hunting 
hunters and non-hunters, but somebody that actually knows it, like like Sarah that you spoke to, for example, previously. Yep. You know, um, these people are there to talk and to be a voice for us and for a a um, uh, a, a 360 conversation, yep. a yep. wholesome conversation that goes around uh, the the public outcries and actually start talking about. How does this look? What is the alternative? What we can, can we do for the future? How can we be progressive about that? But the biggest challenge is funding. There's no funding. Mm-hmm. So we're always chasing the dollar. For this yep. TV show now, the, the Hunt for Silence and a Good Meal, um, all the different brands that I have spoken to, none in the industry can find or is willing to find it, except now these guys lots of groups stepped up to the plate after a conversation for about a couple of hours with uh the pr director or actually the marketing director who is a hunter who is a hunter and i think mm-hmm. this this is a key element that we need to realize i've been working with other brands in the past the people that are sitting in the marketing position or in the pr position at not brand, they're not hunters they don't give a fucking rat's ass about that. Honestly, mm-hmm. they don't. They'd rather be working for a fashion company or a design company. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. don't have any skin in the game. And what about the owners of some of these companies that are not hunters? Yep. They don't care. They have military contracts, so they'll be fine. Yep. No, yep. It's, a, it's a big, big problem that we don't have the support of the industry. And they, they don't see the painting on the wall. The people that are in charge of actually it could make a difference, could bring this to the board, could bring this to the owners. They are not advocating for it. They're not seeing the painting on the wall. And and if if nothing changes, it's not going to be good. It's, it's, I think it's going to go very fast. So mm-hmm. I hope that this TV series and with some of these editorial um, collaborators that we also have, it will air on Wild, Wild TV, but we have we're sharing parts of the content with non-hunting editorial publications, both online and printed versions. Awesome. Uh, our our friends at Modern Huntsman is going to come in and feature it. That's obviously uh, awesome. primarily um, industry. It's a, it's within the lifestyle. But we yep. have food magazines. We have William Brown magazine that is a men's lifestyle magazine, and we have a bunch of other magazines that are both food and lifestyle focused and i hope to add more to that list so we can start getting out to that broader audience and i hope with the with the uh with the guests that we have on the show that can put a different face on it that can bring a different vocabulary that is not afraid of speaking about hunting from an emotional and uh, point of view because that is the other problem that uh, we are not we are a bunch of the majority of the hunters are a bunch of men that have been taught not to talk about their feelings and their emotions. And then what happens? What happens in the public space? Well, you're supposed well, you're, to not. You're not supposed to talk about emotions, Danny. It's you're you're, you're creating victims of hunters, right? Yeah. When you talk about emotions, come on, they, that's bullshit. Yeah. But what's left? What is left? What is left in the public eye when we are taking that part out? What it actually does for us? Oh, no, just callous, redneck hunters that just enjoy killing. Killing. It's the killing that's left. So we need to allow ourselves to actually talk about the emotional side of it, about the mental side of it. What does it do for us as hunters? How does it balance us out? How, uh, what does it do when we had a stressful week and then we actually uh, opening the door and walking out with our dog in the afternoon and going hunting for an hour? What does that does for our psyche? How does that actually reconnect us and balance us? Yeah, and the element there of you going out the door with your dog to go hunting, and at the end of the day, you didn't get anything. And, you know, so it's almost that disconnect, right? Because somebody would say, a non-hunter or an anti-hunter will say, oh, that spirituality is about you, is tying, is very much intimately tied to you taking the life of something. Yeah. It's like, well, no, yeah. the statistics are that I don't take a life every time I go hunting. Right. And the, the, the moment of the kill is such a small part right. of, of the hunt itself and what um, the hunting lifestyle uh, really 
surrounds itself by all the experiences. I mean, we, I think the majority of hunters, they think about hunting 365 days a year. They are making their mental decisions based on, on the learnings and the teachings of the, their connection with nature. Uh, they put their money where their mouth is, you know, so there's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that we also talk about what it actually does to us emotionally. That is right. not easy for us to go out and and kill something. That there is a, a sense of remorse. That is a sense of a, a sense of sadness over have taken this life, and at the same time, a sense of pride and ancestral connection to this animal, an energetic connection to this animal. That's a part of something much, much, much bigger than we can really comprehend unless we are open to it. Right. Um, and I think I, I hope with this series and with some of these people that are coming in and some of, of the some of the talks that I have both um, with myself on camera and and with some of these guests here, these uh, contemplations about life and our role in it and our role in the future. I hope that these can allow other hunters, specifically uh, the male part of, of our hunting community to open up and be be feel that they are allowed to speak about this because it becomes something else when the majority of the public actually understands that this is something that affects us. This mm-hmm. is something that affects us both in in a uh, in a very positive way uh, for us mentally for bringing food to the table, knowing that we're eating something that had a, a good life and that we are advocates for that life uh, because of these choices that we made. But also at the same time that we are actually uh, somewhat saddened about this life that had to end and that we feel that there is that we are responsible for it uh, at the moment that we're pulling the trigger and certainly after and we honor that animal. Uh, who does that that goes into a restaurant or goes exactly. into a market? Exactly. They don't. But we need to be able to talk about it because if not, if we don't allow us, if we, if, if it's fist bumps and high fives and uh, uh, lifting up a trophy with a tongue and blood hanging out of the mouth, if that is the only thing that we are going to be communicating about us showing and sharing with the public, uh, then it's about nothing else but the killing. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember the social media is a uh, devil. It's, 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 it's uh, the worst thing that we could possibly do because I teach visual communication at a, at a university in Florence here. And, and at a, at, I tell my students, you have to be sure that whatever you're putting together, whatever you're communicating is going to have a stop effect. We have statistically 0.49 seconds to capture the attention of a viewer. That means if you are scrolling through your Instagram and somebody all of a sudden sees a picture of a dead animal uh, by an animal activist as uh, whatever category you want to assign to them, um, and they are writing some text about it, the only thing that really sticks to them is that picture. Mm-hmm. It's about the dead animal. They are not going to be reading through the context. And the majority of, well, let's face it, the majority of hunters are not the best communicators. So mm-hmm. how can you explain this? Um, so we, we, we need some self-reflection into, into the lifestyle and to the people that are actually communicating that way on social media and feel that it's their right to share that, which is to some extent they're correct about. But they need to understand the, the implications of of, of uh, sharing that without any context. And even with context, uh, the majority of the people that are going to be seeing this is not going to read it. And they're not mm-hmm. going to understand it because you are not talking about the most important things or uh, you're talking about the the trophy. And the trophy right. then becomes something negative. If you talk about trophies in in the historical perspective or go from a native perspective, for example, it's it's nothing like what it is perceived to be in the public sphere today. I think Mm -hmm. just recently you you posted something on your Instagram about some of these billboards that are up now, and it's that effect we're fighting against. It's It's about explaining and sharing a story that is so complex 
that is hard for us, us, you and I, to put words to it, that have mm -hmm. you and I who actually try to do this for a living or talk about it every single mm -hmm. day, we mm -hmm. still have challenges putting words mm -hmm. to it and explaining it in detail so other people can really understand it mm -hmm. without pulling the trigger themselves. Yeah, well, to that point, you know, that's why you built the Urban Huntsman Hunt for Silence and Hunt for Food. And um, yeah. let everyone know, so when will it be available on Wild TV? Do we know? It is going to air around mid-March 22. Okay, mid-March. Year so, uh, mid-March 22. Well, let us know. Keep us in the loop and uh, let us know how we can help you promote that. Um, obviously, we're all for, you know, pieces of content, visual communications that show hunting in the light that it needs to be shown in. And uh, you do a really good job, like a lot of us, um, a lot of people out there. But uh, one Thanks, of the better man. ones let, that, that do it, my man. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. And let this be a, be a call to everybody out there to, to not to pick up your guns, but pick up your, um, pick up your vocabulary and, and start thinking about having a sit down with a beer or, or your beverage of choice or a spliff or whatever you need to, to allow yourself <laughs> to have this conversation in your head and try and write this down. Why don't you try and write two sentences down and try and compress all these emotions, all these feelings, all these experiences into a sentence or two and saying, if you had to explain to your neighbor or to the person in the supermarket, how would you explain it in a couple of sentences? I think that's an exercise we can do as hunters that will help us start this conversation and feel comfortable with having this conversation. Yeah, not be afraid hunter. about having that conversation. Not being afraid about it, but we don't, we need, we need that reflective time to sit down and just figure out what those words are and what those words are that we're comfortable with expressing. 100%. Well and then Dennis. industry, come on, step up, man. And thank yep, you to Blaser. Sure. There we go. Thanks, Blaser. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Blaser. All right. Thanks, guys. Job. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.